If you have your Bibles, please go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It is, feels like it has been forever since I have been on the stage in this manner. Uh, if you didn't miss me, please don't tell me. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, he says... Uh, you know, in Ecclesiastes, a little bit later, there is a time for everything. There is a time for this, and a time for that, and a time for this, and a time for, for that. And yesterday was another time for the Wolverines to lose. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to say that. One of my elders told me to say that today, so I was respecting him. Right. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, uh, man, um, I told you guys a little bit last week about the journey to this book. Uh, this book is thick, it is rich, uh, mildly disturbing, um, it is uh, honest and truthful. It is, not that the rest of scripture isn't, but he seems to, uh, to really... Uh, really hit it. Uh, I think it was Herman Melville said that you can trust the book of Ecclesiastes because the book of Ecclesiastes talks about his pain and his sorrow uh, and what he has found in this life. Um, this, uh, this book, I, I'm excited to, to get to preach it to you today uh, and, and work through the, we're just going to get through 11 verses and you're thinking, I thought you said we were going to be through this in like 13 or 14 weeks. Uh, we are, uh, but the first like three chapters, we're going to kind of break a few things into pieces here, and then after that, we're going to flow at about a chapter a week. And again, you're saying, yes, yeah, right. No, we are. Um, I, Ecclesiastes uh, is, um, I, I just don't want to be here until Jesus comes back, okay? Unless he comes back in the next 13 weeks, then I'm okay. Uh, but Ecclesiastes, I think, um, really kind of shows us the depths of the human situation so that God can display the splendor of his solution. And I think that's really largely what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. We see someone who has, through wisdom and reason that God has blessed him with, he has looked at this life and said, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, it is all futile. It is all meaningless. This life is meaningless. So I have a question for you. What is the purpose or meaning of life? Uh, and don't go all Rick Warren on me, all right? Um, the purpose-driven life. What is the meaning of life? What is your purpose? Okay. Okay. Well, have you ever thought through? I mean, here, here's, here's my challenge, my suspect. I, I do this myself. It's an indictment of my own behavior. But often I uh, just do life without considering its meaning or its purpose on a daily basis on a routine basis. 
What, what is the meaning of life? Uh, have you ever thought about why do we do what we do? Why do you do what you do? Why do you go to work every day? To what end do we toil, work, or strive for? To what end do we pay a mortgage? To what end do you put up with that spouse? To what purpose do you consider more wisely the food that you eat? What is it all for? And you'll say, well, I, I pay a mortgage so that I have a place to live. Okay, so that in 40 years when Jesus returns, it can all be burnt up. So in 40 years when you die, it can be left and given to someone else. What's the purpose? What's the meaning? At first glance, Ecclesiastes seems to be filled with despair and a hopelessness. Ecclesiastes, I think, as we'll see over the next 13 weeks, is actually filled with glorious hope, with glorious truth and splendor of a life lived not under the sun, but a life lived in Christ. A life where we can only say, all I have is Christ. Because what the author of Ecclesiastes is going to spend time doing is he's going to, the whole book essentially argues that if you are finding meaning and purpose and significance in anything other than God, and we would then learn later that this is Jesus, but anything other than God, that it's meaningless. You pay that mortgage bill just so that you have a place to live. It is meaningless. It's futile. You seek pleasure to, to enjoy these things in life. It is meaningless. To go to a Reds game simply to enjoy the Reds game is meaningless. It is futile. So, here's what we need to do today. We're going to talk through some little bit of background information. I've got about 15 pages of notes uh, to plow us through on 11 verses. Now, here's what I need you to do with me, okay? Whenever we start a new series, there's some background stuff that, that we need to do. We need to understand the context uh, as much as possible. Uh, we understand who's writing it, again, as much as possible. Because that's going to help us, that's going to set the stage for the rest of the text. So if we don't get this kind of down in the beginning, then we won't get the rest of um, Ecclesiastes, or at least we'll miss a lot of Ecclesiastes. So with that said, first of all, we need to go to, go to verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher. Um, you're going to hear me even today and for the remainder of these 13 weeks use the word kohelet. Kohelet is actually the Hebrew word for, pre well, not for preacher, it's later translated as preacher, but kohelet is the Hebrew title for the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is actually the Greek translation of the word kohelet. Um, and kohelet in Hebrew actually means member of the assembly. And the book is sometimes called the preacher based on the interpretation of kohelet as the one who preaches to the assembly. Does that make sense? So kohelet, you'll hear me say that a lot over the next um, 13 weeks. Um, you may also hear me say the preacher 
or Ecclesiastes. It's basically the, the same thing. Ecclesiastes is the preacher. Um, so this is the book that the preacher has written to us. Um, something else to understand about Ecclesiastes is that it's considered wisdom literature. Um, the genre of Ecclesiastes is important. Um, it's considered wisdom literature. These writings offer advice on how to succeed in life as well as reflections on its meaning and problems. That's wisdom literature. Wisdom, even the book of uh, Job, some parts of Psalms, and the book of Proverbs, these, is, this is, these are wisdom, uh, books of wisdom, wisdom literature, and they all provide reflections on its meaning in life, uh, the meaning of life and its problems and offer advice on how to succeed. The next thing is dating. Um, I, I don't have time to, like, to really dive into the culture during this time, but I want to encourage you. I, I think, you know, scholars argue on the date placement for the book of Ecclesiastes. From my research, the best I can tell is probably um, a third century B.C., which puts it pretty late. Um, matter of fact, it puts it very, very late, towards the end of the writing of the Old Testament. Um, I think, uh, part of the reason why I think that, I think if you look at verse, chapter 5, you have your Bibles, look at verse 8. See, he mentions the, the province as the place where the reader lives, the one reading this book lives in the province. This indicates, I think, that the Jews were living in an empire, either Persian Empire or the Hellenistic empires. Um, the same verse describes a layered and burdensome bureaucratic system that would have prevailed in the Hellenistic Empire of 333 through 63 BC. Um, and then if you look at chapter 9, verse 11, it mentions a race. I think that points to a Hellenistic setting, foot races, uh, and the Greeks. Um, I think it would have been a, a prominent event in their athletics, these races. So I think, um, among a few other things that we'll talk about in a moment, but um, I think it places us so around 300 B.C. So what I would encourage you to do is go research some of that. Go look at that time period and go, what is, what's going on in this Hellenistic empire? What's, what's happening here? Uh, and that will help provide some setting for this time period. Um, the next thing I, w- I want to talk about is like kind of the structure of Ecclesiastes. Uh, you know, when we get to Proverbs, we can kind of read two or three Proverbs and go, wow, that's my cute verse for the day. Um, and, and we call that you know, wisdom literature. We can't do that in Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is considered wisdom literature, but I think the best advice would be to encourage you to read it more like a narrative. Read it more like uh, wisdom literature that's telling us a story. Um, and that, cause, uh, well, and I don't want to ask who all did this, but I want to encourage you, if you haven't done this, do it this week. Read all of Ecclesiastes in one setting. Just sit, begin, beginning and set aside about an hour, read the whole thing. Should, should, I mean, you're going, well, Matt, you're a fast reader. You don't know how long it takes me to read. All right. Should take an hour, okay? And if it doesn't, that's okay. Maybe set aside, if you think you're an extra slow, set aside two hours. Either way, read the whole thing in one setting. And it'll help provide, um, I think, the overall narrative. Let me encourage you to do this. As you read it as one thing, you're not looking to understand every last detail. You will be there all day. Read it to look for big themes, 
big sections. Like, what is he talking about in this chapter here? What's the overall thing that's sticking out? Uh, so let me encourage you to do that. Last little bit of um, kind of background is Ecclesiastes is probably the closest thing in the Bible that we have to philosophy. Um, but the closest thing we have to philosophy. Now, um, I'm not a big philosophy dude. Uh, that, that's uh, code for I'm terrible at philosophy. Uh, I mean, I can sit and think all day. Um, coming up with anything logical is, is doesn't happen very often, but philosophy is this. It's the intellectual, rational contemplation of fundamental human issues with no recourse to revelation or tradition. So philosophy basically is contemplating life uh, and life issues without referring to or any recourse to religion, revelation, tradition. So it's just Basically, an abandonment of that and taking the time to sit there and think through what is life, what is its purpose, what is its meanings, what, you know, and, and various other topics. But um, so Ecclesiastes, that's what he does. That's what the preacher does. Um, let me say one other thing before I go, because I forgot to say this earlier, but um, a lot of people, uh, authorship of Ecclesiastes, a lot of people like to ascribe it as Solomon. Um, I've heard a number of guys ascribe Solomon as the author. I. I if, if we do a later dating, uh, it's not going to be Solomon. Um, I think it's someone referring, I think it's like this, if I'm writing to you a story, and I want you to think that I'm writing from this person's perspective. Does that make sense? So I'm going to write a book um, and pretend as if I'm this person. and write. Now he's not doing it, I don't think in a um, sly kind of way. I don't think he's doing it to trick us into thinking it's Solomon. There's, there's no, um, uh, well, let me just say, let's just leave it at that. E- either way, we could still get to the meaning of Ecclesiastes. I don't think that the authorship of it is incredibly crucial, but just so that you know, there's, there's no clear cut who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. We know that the preacher wrote Ecclesiastes. Um, so back to the philosophy thing. Um, it's interesting because a lot of people, when they read the book of Ecclesiastes, they, they make um, bold claims or bold statements about the big issue that what Kohelet does in here is that he is incredibly pessimistic uh, and he makes obvious contradictions, uh, which I encourage you to look for some of those. What contradictions does, does Kohelet make in the book of Ecclesiastes? Um, but I don't think that that's the, kind of the boldest thing going on in the text. I think what's most bold is that the belief that the individual can and should proceed toward truth by means of his own power of perception and reasoning, and that he can in this way discover truths previously unknown. And that's what Kohelet does. He sits, he thinks, he ponders through his powers of perception and reasoning, he discovers truths previously unknown. Um, now, I'm not denying God's role in that, okay? Um, but that's a bold claim, I think, that, that the preacher makes, uh, or that he shows us uh, and makes as he shows us. Um, one author said that in Kohelet, we find the personally engaged critical individuality of an acute observer and independent thinker. 
He's a man, uh, assuming, assuming uh, most likely some man. Uh, he's an observer who is looking at the details of life, and this is the conclusion that he comes to. This is the conclusion. Kohelet shows an awareness uh, also of other philosophies of his day. Um, that's why it's encur- I'd encourage you to study that Hellenistic uh, time period. The popular philosophy was to find the way to individual happiness by the use of the powers of reason. If you study Greek philosophy, you get the Epicureans sought happiness through pleasure and freedom, uh, from fear particularly. Uh, the Stoic philosophers sought to find it in the shedding or the dismissal of desires and passions, that if we just, just dismiss all of our desires and passions and pursuits, then that we will find happiness. Uh, what's interesting, though, is both of these schools of philosophy agreed that the inner uh, human experience is the, the point or the, loc- uh, the, the central point of freedom and happiness. That's where it's kind of birthed from, is inside uh, this person. Um, it's interesting, Kohelet in chapter 2, verse 3, says to discover what, or in Kohelet in 2, verse 3, to discover what is good for men to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. Um, so Kohelet, I think, was, I, I don't think that he uh, is trying to engage the Greek philosophers during this time, but I think he was aware uh, and referenced some of that throughout uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so, this is important to think. Uh, the challenge for us is twofold. One, um, we live in a day, again, where we do and we don't think. Or if we think, we think about stupid things. Uh, or worthless, time-wasting things. <laughs> uh, instead of spending time thinking about the things of life that really matter. Like, what is its meaning? Why do I do what I do? Why do I have this job? Why do I go to school? Why am I talking to my neighbor? Why do I love, continue to love my spouse? Um, the second challenge for us is this. Today, you're not going to get a clear beginning, middle, and end of a sermon. Um, it's going to be more like Ecclesiastes part 1 of 13, Okay. Uh, you need to kind of see this. I'm going to try and package them as best as I can. But for instance, Ecclesiastes poses a great problem in chapter 1, a big problem in chapter 1, and he does not resolve it for many chapters. And so for me, I think to resolve it today, I think would be doing injustice to the text. I think if we jump too quickly to the resolution, then we miss the depth of the despair that the book of Ecclesiastes tells us about today. And I think the challenge, and, and I don't want to pick on other pastors and preachers, but I, I think the, the, the problem is that we preach this text and we go, oh no, this is really bad, and he's right, and I as a teacher want my people to understand that he, the situation's bad, but I don't want them to leave feeling bad. I want them to leave knowing that Jesus has saved the day. And you know what? He has. Um, But I also think many times we just are so quick. 
Like we will dabble in this despair or this depravity of ourselves and we'll stay there for a few moments and then that's all we can handle and we have to run back real quick. And, and, and I'm not saying that we need to delay running to our refuge at the foot of the cross. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the more we understand our despair, the more we understand the splendor of the cross. Um, so that's why we talk, we want, we want people in today's church culture, typically, we want people to see Jesus, but we want them, people to see Jesus apart from seeing their despair. And it's just impossible. We see our despair, and it lies in the shadow of the cross, right? So, um, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, um, it, the Old Testament asserts, I think, one fundamental truth uh, among many, but one particular, that there is a creator, that he is distinct from his creation, that we are his creatures, we are not him, and the essence of life consists in glorifying and enjoying that creator and honoring him as the one who is the Lord and sovereign. That is the fundamental truth of the Old Testament. So I think it's perfectly appropriate for us to have a book that sets forth what happens when you attempt to live life against that truth or without that truth. It's an explanation of the different ways that people try to find meaning in this life apart from God. An explanation of how futile that is. Um, He says all is vanity. You know what he means? He means all is vanity. Everything under the sun is vanity apart from God. Everything in this world, everything in the earthly sphere is incapable of satisfying the deepest part of our soul apart from God. And you say, all right, well, well, Matt, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I got this. We're going to spend 14 weeks on, on this because you don't got this. I don't got this. I know it's bad English. It's okay. We don't have this. We need to see the human situation. Because here's a side note. If we really see what Ecclesiastes is talking about here, then we see the ruin that our friends, our lost friends and neighbors live in. When we see them, we don't see this perfect little house with a nice job and nice cars. We see them living a life of futility, of meaninglessness, headed towards destruction. And then the challenge for us is that when we try to live life apart from Christ, then we begin to head towards destruction. So have I thoroughly depressed everybody? Are we thoroughly depressed? Okay, good. Basically, what we have is the book is a believing philosopher's, a believing philosopher's inspired reasoning about the truth end of life. So what is the truth end of life? And this is his thoughts. And this is his way of pressing those with a faulty idea of this, li- of this truth end of life. So these guys who have different reasons or different meanings for life or different goals, purpose, other than God... This is his way of dealing with that, impressing those. 
He says, if you choose to live life apart from God, this is what life will look like. You got that? So for those of you who are followers, who are trying to persevere towards the coming of Christ, here's your warning. Your perseverance stops. It wanes. This is what it's about. This is the warning. It's a warning to all of us. Verses 1 through 11 basically is the introduction to this book. And verse 2 is the preacher's thesis statement for the whole book. That'll be on the test. Then verses 3 through 11, he's going to elaborate on this thesis statement, if you will, from different angles. With all of that said, let's get back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing, nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be a remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. What is life all about? The answer, the preacher says, it is empty. There is no meaning. There is no significance. He says, if you want to live life under the sun, if you want to live apart from God, if you want to search for meaning in this life anywhere and everywhere but in a saving relationship with God, the answer is this life is empty. It's futile. It is meaningless. Let me give you a little bit of modern day uh, philosophy, um, a little bit of a backdrop here. Um, you know, During Kohelet's time, it was the pursuit of happiness. How do we get to happiness um, Kohelet's conclusion will be obvious, and that's we can't. We cannot get to happiness. Um, it's interesting, over the past couple centuries, there's been, a, I think, a realization, in, in philosophy anyways, of, um, uh, of the fact that we can't reach this happiness. That life is meaningless. Life is pointless. Life is futile. There is no point to toil um, why? why? Why am I going to do this? It's just, it's all going to be burnt up. Um, philosophers believing that the only thing that we have control over is the ability to take our own life at any moment. Other than that, it's all determined. Therefore, if nothing matters, and all of life is futile, and the only thing we have control over is our own life, then instead of toiling for nothing, the most logical thing would be for us to kill ourselves. Like, 
one thing results, or a couple of different options results from that thinking that nothing matters, so let's just make the most of it and enjoy it while we can. Um, that's kind of one result of that. Nothing matters, so let's just, my, my goal is just to have fun while I can and then let it all go. Uh, and then the next person, the next option is um, I'm going to have, uh, there is no point, and it's just going to be toil after toil. Why subject myself to that toil? The highest good in that philosophy is that I might as well kill myself. Um, so if you're familiar with the philosophy, it's called nihilism. Uh, it was founded in the 19th century, uh, or made popular at least in the 19th century by a uh, popular German philosopher named uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, you know, it's interesting, um, let me make a comment before I go through that. You know, you say, well, well Matt, what's this have to do with us? Um, I think it shows, see, here, here's, here's the problem. Many people, I think, live in this realm. They just haven't been intellectually honest enough to admit that they live in this realm. So, I live from one high to the next, whether that's a perceived good high or that's a, you know, a, a drug high. We live from one thing to the next, and, and people live in this despair and not realizing it, and um, I you know, I, well, I'll just, I'll just say this. Did you know from ages 14 or 18 to 24, uh, particularly among college students, that the highest rate, the highest leading cause of death is suicide? Um, and it's rising. Um, I think that shows some of the despair. It shows that... Um, um, People in that moment realizing that this is meaningless. There's, there's no point for me to be here. All it is is pain. Right? All it is is toil. And there is no point. I might as well end it now. So back to Nietzsche. Um, basically, his, his idea was again, was that there's no meaning to this life. Um, all values are baseless, meaning that anything that we value, there's no reason to value it. You set your own values. So there is no objectivity to that which we value. Um, I should also say nihilism comes from uh, a Latin word, nihil, or nihil, I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, basically means nothing. Uh, so there is no point to this. There, it is, there is nothing um, that can be absolutely known or communicated. That would be what they would hold. Every belief, every considering something true is necessarily false because there is simply no true world. There is nothing true to, uh, to this life. It is all made up. Nietzsche said in arguing for nihilism that its corrosive effect would eventually destroy all moral, religious, and metaphysical convictions and lead to the greatest crisis in human history. I think if we look around, we, we see the effects of this all around us. Um, a really, well, let me, let me read this next quote um, from another well-known uh, nihilist in the 1800s. He said, let us put our trust in the eternal spirit which destroys and annihilates 
only because it is the unsearchable and eternal creative source of all life. The passion for destruction is also a creative passion. So, just think about this for a moment. If all of life is pointless, is meaningless, is futile, why persevere through the mess? Why? Why do we do that? It's interesting. Um, Shakespeare said that we are food for worms. That's all we are. Is food for worms. So if that's all we are good for, then why not just go ahead and fulfill that good now? Right? I mean... I mean, some of you are going, whoa, what is he talking? Like, what happened to our preacher the past two weeks? He's like gone. <laughs> Where's his mind, you know? And next he's going to be asking us to drink Kool-Aid. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll show up at his house at midnight three weeks from now. I'm just kidding. Um, whoa. Just, okay. So for some of you, you're like, whoa, deep, man. They're like smoking something. Um, all right. Let me just, let's just pull back for a second. Because I, I don't want us all going like, Oh, zombie, you know. Um, this is real stuff, okay? You know, someone didn't drop off a bag of little green stuff, and the preacher had a good time last week. Um, this is Ecclesiastes saying that it is all meaningless, and then we have modern philosophy, uh, at least over the past couple hundred years, that is really diving into this, and if you study the academics today and, and the academic uh, you know, institutions and universities, this is, this is not a distant concept for them. You will find many uh, of our university professors right down this road and many people living as though nothing really matters. Um, you know, before all of this mess came in the past couple hundred years in this philosophy. We find ourselves, though, with a much wiser man. Uh, we find ourselves with the author of Ecclesiastes. Um, and I think part of the challenge, again, for us is to take the time to actually think through life. Why? What's its purpose? And I think he set a good example of, uh, of this and was a good steward of his time, and he's he considers its value, life's value, considers its reason, its purpose, its function. He observes its realities. I mean, th these are not theory, theories. This is not a theory book. This is his observation of the realities of this life. And he honestly, sincerely, thoroughly accounts those in these words. What is this meaning? Everything is meaningless. Vanities of vanities. Uh, it's, you know, today we live in a church culture that pretends like everything Christian is grand and everything secular is evil. The problem with that is that Kohelet says everything is meaningless. 
We think just because Jesus, it's got his name on it, that it now has purpose. Because it fits in our subculture of Christianity that it has purpose. No. And just because there's some lost dude that's connected with it, that, that somehow makes it not good. The preacher says it's all meaningless. The fact is that everyone is headed down the path of destruction. Everyone in this world, everything in this world is meaningless yet determined, and so thus we are all headed towards destruction, physical destruction, spiritual destruction. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Ecclesiastes, a mindset on earthly things, and here's the result. This is the result. It's destruction. And you're saying, well, Matt, again, I'm saved, dude. I'm good. Are you? First of all, it's perseverance. I mean, to persevere, I'm not saying we're earning our salvation, right? We've already talked about that a hundred times. But my, my question is, is your path Right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has divinely disrupted that path and has set you on a different path that at any moment you could turn the other way. Right? And for many of us, we don't, in, in, in a day or two, we're not going to turn that path and, and, and ultimately turn that path, but we basically, if, if you will, take glances at that path. We put one step back on that path, many of us on a daily basis. It's called sin. And we, we take that foot and we go, ah, I think I'm going to run over here for just a few moments. And, and then the Holy Spirit goes, no, 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 no. You're here. You have been redeemed. And then we want to take one more step back on that path. And, uh, 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 uh. and so the warning here, there's plenty of application for us as believers as well as for those who are unbelievers. So, make, I just want to make sure it's clear. The dividing line is not sacred, sacred, <laughs> sacred, secular. He says everything under the sun is meaningless. And Kohelet's, what he, when he says under the sun, he means anything apart from God is meaningless. It all is meaningless. So, Kohelet's main proposition is this. If you look at your notes there. All man's efforts to find happiness, satisfaction, significance, and meaning in this life apart from God are utterly vain. They are futile. They will not result in anything good. Apart from God are utterly vain. A key point to think about. In this context, Kohelet is a believing philosopher who has done a thorough intellectual evaluation of life and has come to this conclusion. The fact is, many of us, both saved and unsaved, 
have not been good stewards of our minds and thought through this life in which we live. And that's what I want to start off with, a challenge for us to do that. Because if we're just doing, we're not living. It is, if we're just doing, it is futile. If you're just working to pay a mortgage, that is futile. If you're just loving your wife to have happiness at home, that is futile. It is meaningless. It will all be burned up someday. John Piper has a book on marriage called The Momentary Marriage. Uh, there's no indications of, of marriages in the kingdom. Uh, so what's its purpose? It's a good question. I'm not going to answer it right now. So let's do this. We're going to work through the text. You're like, wow, that's your introduction. It was 30 minutes long. Yes, it was. Now we're going to preach the other half of this, and we're going to work through the text, okay? Col- uh, Colossians. Wow! We have really have been there for 20 weeks. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. What is he doing? Kohelet here attests to his own competence. He begins by claiming his competence. He calls himself the preacher. He, I think you see here an allusion to Solomon. When he says, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Basically what Kohelet is saying is, I know what I'm talking about. I've experienced some things. I've achieved. I'm in a position where I've lived through life. I've accomplished things that few men have accomplished. I've had a special kind of life experience so that I can state with confidence the things that I'm getting ready to state in a few moments. It's interesting because what, what's happening, if, Kohala, if, if, it's the, if the author is Solomon, and even if it's not Solomon, but it's Kohelet writing as if he is Solomon, you just have to imagine Solomon has all the resources in the world, has all the money in the world, has all the wives. Uh, I don't know how he has that many, but lots of them, lots of concubines. Like he, he, it talks about... King Solomon building a forest. Like, who builds a forest and builds lakes to give water to the forests? Who, who has parties that last for days and days, slaughtering hundreds and hundreds of sheep and animals to feed them? So this is a man who could live all of these opportunities to find meaning apart from God. He had all the wealth to do so. And he says, this is my conclusion. It's all meaningless. So you can't sit there as we go through Ecclesiastes and go, well, he just hasn't thrown the right party. I'm telling you what. I was in some parties. And they were awesome. We had a keg. Yeah. He, he owned Budweiser, all right? And M- Miller. Like, he owned them all, okay? And he says, just bring the whole thing and start making more. And that was his parties. Okay? And some of you, anyways. I was never, yeah, anyways. All right, moving on, sorry. Adventuring into a realm of which I don't have much of a clue about. All right, basically he's saying, I know what I'm talking about. I've been there. I've got the t-shirt. I drank the Kool-Aid. So right off the bat, Kohelet gets straight to the point. 
Second point, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The human situation is characterized as vanity. All of life is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's fruitless. This is a brutal thesis statement. This is a realistic evaluation of life under the sun. It's a life that doesn't look to the ultimate realities that are beyond this earthly reality. Does that make sense? It's a life that only looks to these realities and does not look to the realities beyond this place. A life lived apart from God. He says, vanity of vanities. Vanity means, the word vanity means, or the uh, right here, means meaningless. So what he's really saying here is meaningless of meaninglessnesses, Right? It's just literally hard to say that. Meaningless of meaninglessnesses. It's vanity of vanity. It is, this is ultimate vanity. It is ultimately futile. The world in which we find ourselves is a chaos without meaning or progress. Kohelet's saying, go ahead, try to live this life apart from God, and this is your life and how it's going to be. Empty. Emptiness and pessimism. You understand, emptiness and pessimism is really the only alternatives to the biblical way of life. That's his, that's his statement here. Emptiness is the only other alternative to all I have is Christ. It's emptiness. And here's here, just, just one application. Again, our lost friends... That's where they're at. Emptiness. Well, they have all this stuff and they seem very happy and they are empty. We'll talk about that in a few moments. So basically, he is going to, from this point, explore these other alternatives, this emptiness and pessimism. Um, His point here is to undermine confidence in an unbelieving view of life by pointing to its futility. So his goal here is to undermine this alternate way of life apart from God. And he's going to do it very well. (laughs) Uh, You're going to feel the weight if you don't already today. Uh, Again, just to emphasize, he doesn't mean that most things are vanity. He doesn't mean that for the most part this life under the sun is meaningless. He really does mean that nothing apart from God can supply ultimate meaning. He means nothing. Not just what has happened thus far. Again, he made, makes Donald Trump, Bill Gates look like poor, dirty men living in a cardboard box. Solomon had the life. And he says it's all meaningless. I think this also reminds us of a few things about life. The brevity of life the unsubstantiality of life, the unreliability of life, the frailty of life, the futility of life, the deceptiveness of life. You guys know what it's like, right? To have that item or that thing that you're getting ready to buy or that relationship that you're working towards and and you're going, 
If I just get to that or get to that place, I'll find happiness. Right? I'll be excited. I'll be thrilled. Uh, a week and a half ago, I started looking forward to the release of iOS 6. If you're not an Apple person, that's the new operating system for their mobile devices. Um, for their iPad, iPhone. Okay, uh, as long as you're all with me. And I started looking forward to this. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. i got these features. And i got this one that in particular I was looking forward to called Passbook. Passbook is the ability to put in your, uh, basically your airplane tickets, your Major League Baseball tickets, which I should have taken advantage of that yesterday, but the only time I get, anyways. So, like, you could put in your Kroger Plus card, your loyalty cards, uh, you know, all this stuff, and it can, like, be right there in your phone. You don't have, because, you know, you know what this like on your keychain, right? Like, these things, they're just, you know, and I play with them in my pocket, and it rips, and, you know, I, I go to Speedway every time, and they're like, do you have your Speedy Rewards card? And I'm like, yes, but I don't have it with me. I don't like it on my keychain, and my wallet's too fat. Um, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, let me punch in a number, you know? And like, anyways, sorry, I'm venting. But, um, so I'm like, this is cool. I'll be able to put it all on my phone. And so I get to the app, and there's one option. I download iOS 6, waited like three years to download it, and, uh, and I'm like, okay, awesome. And I go to Passbook, get ready to do this. Like, I'm really excited about it, because like, hey, anything to make my life easier, right? Not having to carry loyalty cards makes my life easier. Uh, that's terrible, but it does. And so I'm like, in this app, and I go to it, and it's like, go to the app store. I go to the app store. I'm like, Fandango, that's a movie thing. I don't want that. And it lists like Major League Baseball and a couple other like apps or passbook options to go with this. I'm like, what, huh? I don't, what, what, what's this for? I already have the app. I don't want this stuff. So then I kind of went back. I restarted my phone. I like made sure it was all up. I checked everything. I was like, it was all good. And, and, then, and, then, and then I started, then I did it. I'm like, same thing. I'm like, I don't want this. And then, and then I get on Google, and like, I'm like, Google's got the answers, right? And then like comes these slew of people who are like, yeah, Passbook's terrible, you know, Apple doesn't deliver, and I'm going, for once I agree, yes, this has been terrible. Um, that's my lame example of seeking out satisfaction in something that's terribly, does not deliver. It must be because Steve Jobs is gone, because I don't think he would have let that happen, but sorry. Kohelet says, if you're searching for this kind of life apart from God, you will end up with a handful of wind. Thought about that? A handful of wind. Life apart from God is utterly meaningless. William Shakespeare eloquently summarized this issue near the end of Macbeth. Here he has Macbeth pour out his disgust for life. He says this, out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That is life. My question for you today is where are you looking for significance at? Are you looking for meaningfulness 
in your right actions? Are you looking for meaningfulness in your kids? Are you looking for meaningfulness in your job? Are you looking for meaningfulness in your intellect? Do you find meaningfulness when your emotions afford you the opportunity? Kohelet is saying to you today, you'll never find it. No endeavor, no quest obtained, no possession under the sun can give you meaning, significance, and purpose in life. Nothing. The third thing he tells us is that the yield of all your endeavors will be emptiness. Believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, the yield of your endeavors will be emptiness apart from Christ. Verse 3, what does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's not, he's, just for clarification purposes, he's not asking for you to assess this. He is telling you, I have assessed this. And here's the result. It's nothing. There is no gain by all the toil at which we toil under the sun. No earthly endeavor will produce the significance. For all man puts into life what's his yield. What's the result? Colette basically says this life pays no dividends. It's kind of like savings accounts at a bank. You know, unless you have a couple million dollars in there, you gain like two pennies at the end of the month. And then if you're nice, they'll give you double that. Uh, you get four cents, you know. Uh, and he's saying, you don't even get that from this life apart from God. You don't even get that. Why, why, I mean, that's why we come back to, why, why do you go to work every day? Why? Why? Why not just sit around in your boxers or your PJs and watch TV all day? You're like, well, because then I wouldn't have the money to pay for the TV. Very good, very good. We are thinking deeply. Uh, think about it. Think about the physical labor, toil, emotional anguish, misery, trouble, and hardship that goes along with all human endeavors. Even the human endeavor to love someone. And then comes the misery of their death or their departure. Why? Meaning in life cannot be found in human endeavors, however noble they may even be. I mean, think about the pure secular philanthropist who continues his charity. Why? Why does he continue to give? Apart from God. Because of the momentary and fleeting experience of self-worth and purpose. And why does he do it again? Because he needs to feel that once more. Because it is momentary and fleeting. The next day, the philanthropist is empty. So just in case you weren't depressed yet, let's move on. Verse, verse 4, Ecclesiastes says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
So you know this problem that I've been talking about for just three verses now, right? You know this problem? He says it goes on and on and on and on. The problem is perpetual. It does not stop. It does not stop. The problem of meaninglessness under the sun doesn't go away. No future generation will come up with a secret formula. It doesn't get better over time. The problem will outlast every generation. I mean, here we are today, and 200 years ago, the nihilists think they've thought of something new. I wonder if they footnoted their work. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, you know, in the Bible, Old Testament. They probably, yeah, anyways, moving on. Verse number five, number five. There seems to be no solution to the problem in nature. Verses five through seven, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. It does it again and again and again and again. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Continues on and on and on and on. You ever thought about that? I mean, the stream flows and the ocean never gets full. Now, all right, scientists, um, just, all right, we're going to move on. The appearance, <laughs> it flows, and it is never full. And, but even then, if we go into the scientific explanation, it evaporates, and then rain pours, and then blah, blah, blah. Even then again, what's going on? It is doing it again, and again, and again, and again, over and over again. In the Old Testament, you know what a believer did when they saw the regularity of the sunrise and the seasons? They rejoiced. To the unbeliever, it's monotonous and hopeless. Under the sun, though nature is active to the point of an inexpressible exhaustion, it can't provide man with lasting satisfaction. All of it is pointless in terms of providing ultimate significance. All of it. I told you that Kohaled, the preacher, was not going to leave any stone unturned, right? He's going to keep pressing. And we're only just a few verses in. The sixth thing I think we see here in this text is that the things that we want the most in this life eventually weary us upon reflection apart from God. All things, he says in verse 8, are full of weariness. Do you think he thinks most things? No, he means all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We are impacted, I think, by two universal truths. You can write these down. One, the law of unfulfilled expectations. The law of unfulfilled expectations and the law of diminishing returns. The law of unfulfilled expectations, the law of diminishing returns. When you finally get all you've always wanted, you find out it didn't give you what you thought it was going to give you.
let's think about, anybody watch the Olympics this year? I'll watch the Olympics. Yeah, the Olympics were good. How about Michael Phelps? The, f- the fish. They should remake Waterworld with Michael Phelps. Just saying, okay? Did anybody see the movie Waterworld? Kevin Costner? Come on. That was a cool movie. We got like five people who've seen it. All right, go rent Waterworld. I might have to find it on like a cassette or something. Uh, that's what I meant, video cassette. Yeah, VHS. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, I, I, I think Michael Phelps is a fish. Anyways, on, on to Michael Phelps. That wasn't just random. Uh, Michael Phelps, uh, I, I think I wrote here, if he has half an intellect with honor for reflection, he would have to conclude that he is one of the most miserable human beings on the earth if his satisfaction is found in his accomplishments even withholding the record for the most Olympic medals. After having accomplished, this is what's interesting, after having accomplished one of the greatest tasks an athlete could ever accomplish in an interview, he sounds so happy and satisfied and where he's at and where he's accomplished. Uh, if you guys watched any of his interviews with uh, uh, Bob Costas, uh, I had to explain to that who, I was trying to explain that to Rusty who it was, and he's like, uh, Dude, everybody knows who that is. So if you don't, you can go ask Rusty because he thinks you know who it is. Uh, anyways, he's doing this interview with him, and he's like, uh, uh, you know, he's so happy and excited. And then what happens, no, no joke, a couple months later, I was reading an article from the USA Today on August 12th. Uh, it was a golf channel uh, referring to his recent deal signed with the golf channel for a golfing show. And he says this, he says, I've traveled the world through swimming, but really haven't had an opportunity to experience the world through my travels. Phelps said in a news release issued by the Golf Channel, as I enter this next chapter of my life, I think I will be able to shift my competitiveness to anything I put my mind to, and golf is one of those things I want to focus on. Phelps, who wants to put his name in the record books by winning the most, I'm sorry, Phelps, who just put his name in the record books by winning the most medals in Olympic history, is very serious about improving his game. He goes on, he says, he says this, listen to these words. If I have a goal of dropping a certain amount of shots or working on my short game or putting, those things are going to keep me motivated and fire me up and keep me excited. He said in the release, I want to play all the world's great golf courses but I'd like to play them well. Keep me motivated and keep me excited. She just accomplished the greatest things an athlete could ever accomplish. Better than getting an NBA national championship ring, a Super Bowl ring, like the most medals ever won. And he says... I need this to keep me excited. The law of diminishing returns. What about it? We may enjoy something or delight in it, but over time the return lessens. Sometimes we even get sick of that which we once delighted in. I mean, let's think about divorces. Many marriages start out with much delight. How we love each other. This is so great and awesome. And the divorce rate now, over half of them end up in bitter divorce. Why? Because verse 8 says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied. 
with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Any marriage under the sun cannot satisfy. Yes, it is a common grace given by God to all men, but it cannot satisfy. It's meaningless. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine said years ago, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Why? Why are they restless? He says this right before it. You made us for yourself, and therefore our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Because you made us for yourself. All I have is Christ, right? Number seven. Ultimate meaning is not found in progress, invention, or new accomplishments. 9 through 10, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new, it is, has been already in the ages before us, basically meaning, basically meaning meaning is not found in the next thing, because the next thing never turns out to be so new af- after all. He's not fighting against progress or technology. He's saying that you cannot find ultimate meaning in progress or technology. Again, back to Michael Phelps. In an interview with Bob Costas, he said, he always wanted, Michael Phelps said this, I always wanted to be the first person to do something. This is, I don't want to pick on his intellect, but this is so profound. Uh, I have become the first Michael Phelps. Um, That's great. Um, But here's what's interesting. Then he goes on to say, I, he has broken this record of the most medals um, that has been held by a Russian gymnast for about 50 years. And, and I want to know, does anyone in here, don't say it out loud, does anyone know the name of that gymnast? Nobody. I figured there would be at least one. Um, I, figured Bri- well, I figured Brian. I figured Brian. Yeah, like 50, 60 years. Yeah, he's a Russian gymnast. It's a female. That, that might be it. Here, here's another point. I didn't even care to write down the name, so you'll have to go find that out. Uh, my point is that she or he, I think it's, anyway, I don't even know. It was held for 50, 60 years. He wanted to be the first Michael Phelps to be remembered to leave this legacy. And these accomplishments will be forgotten. They will be forgotten. Number eight, meaning and significance cannot be found in remembrance. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. Meaning and significance cannot be found even in being remembered. There is no remembrance of the things that once were, and there is no remembrance of the things yet to come. How many of you know the name of your great, great, great grandpa? <laughs> All I have is an I used to. Uh, very, thanks. Yeah. Proves the point, right? Remembrance. There's no meaning found. Um, Yeah, I'm gonna laugh. I mean, your son's like, Dad. I don't want your name. I'm not gonna name my kid your son or your name. Yeah. 
sorry. <laughs> I wanted to do that. My wife's like, I don't like that. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So as we near the end, Corlett says that life will either be bitter, cynical, and pessimistic, or trite, unrealistic, naive, and impractical. Think about that. So this is, I think, where all of those apart from Christ, so those who are lost and those of us who try to live life apart from God, even if it's just for a few moments, two options are this, bitter, cynical, and pessimistic. I'd write those down. Bitter, cynical, and pessimistic. Or trite, unrealistic, naive, impractical, ignorant. I added one, sorry. Because uh, uh, here's the deal. So when you look at thin life, honestly, intellectually, and you study it with wisdom, according to God's word, so on and so forth, and you come to the conclusion that Ecclesiastes came to, that the preacher came to, your result is bitter, cynical pessimism. If we continue li- living in our ignorance, it is trite, unrealistic, naive, and practical. Impractical. We're going to be exploring these two options over and over again the next few weeks. And you're going, oh man, this is rough. Uh, it's the most boring sermon I've ever heard. Uh, I hope not. But um, we're going to explore these options. Just what Kohelet, what God has ordained to be written into His Word is what we're going to explore over the next uh, number of weeks. What's interesting, I, I, that's my phrase today for some reason. If you, if you were keeping count, I'm going to try not to say it again. Um, it's kind of like um or like. Um, what's interesting is, there you go again, um, is that Kohelet does not jump to an answer. And if you read on, he doesn't get to an answer for a long time. Um, I want to read a couple things to us in closing. Um, the song that we sang, All I Have is Christ. R- listen to these lyrics. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Philippians 3, verses 18 through 21. We read part of this earlier. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their gl- they glory in their shame with minds set on things under the sun. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all thanks to himself.
Amen? Amen. If Kohelet is right, and that this world is meaningless apart from God, if he is right, then we need a divine disruption. We need God to enter into that path towards destruction and to rescue us. To do something to break in to that, even this day. Something to break into the depths of our despair and disrupt our path towards destruction. We'll get to that good stuff while we enjoy this good stuff over the next few weeks, okay? So what I want to encourage you guys to do um, is um, we're going to sing because I, I don't want to end right here on this note because I want you guys to understand that even in the midst of this, what I started out saying is that we, we need to spend time even in these moments where we feel like we're drowning in depression. Like, no joke, I was reading this philosophy on nihilism this past week, and, and then I called someone shortly after that, and I told him I was reading this, and I said, man, I just, like, I was getting so depressed. Like, I was like, someone give me Joel Osteen or something. Uh, something to, like, bring me out of this. Uh, and then I thought, well, that wouldn't work either. Nothing under the sun satisfies. Um, and, uh, and then I thought, all I have is Christ. And it's in that moment, it's, it's, it is in my despair that I see His love for me. And I see the work He did in order to display that love for me. It's in that despair that I see his plan to glorify himself and bring honor to his name. Realize, even in our finite ability, just how great the cost it took to ransom me. So as we sing this next song, I, um, let's think through these things deeply. So let's pray. Father. Thank you for your words, even though to our finite, temporary, uh, nearsightedness, uh, even in the, in the midst of, I should say, in the midst of that nearsightedness, we, we forget just how big the picture is that you have painted, just how broad the strokes are of your grace. And Father, so in these moments, let us not so quickly forget the depths of our despair. But Father, let us understand that we stand at the foot of the cross. And Father, we are not left, those of us who are believers and followers of Christ, we are not left to this despair. Father, it's because of your work on the cross.